The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. It's Friday, June the 9th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics Wrap of the Week. From the Irish Times, I'm Hugh Linehan. Pat Leahy and Harry McGee are here today. Hi, guys. Hi, Hugh. How's it going? Very good. It's getting warmer out there. Summer is definitely upon us. Um, But the same old, same old debates about the public finances, Harry. IFAC, which I always think sounds a bit like a beginning of a Cockney swear sentence, um, (laughs) has had... had Words to say about threats of tax cuts and the implications yeah, of that for public finances. Yeah, really, shouldn't it? If, it is, if it's a truly Irish institution. It um, yeah, they kind of... Um, Irish Fiscal and Economic uh, Council? Uh, Irish Fiscal. You know, IFEC? Yeah. Advisory Council, I think. No, but he's saying no, the Irish IFEC. Oh, I see. Fiscal. Oh, okay, sorry, I'm very yeah. slow. Okay, well... Anyway, moving swiftly on. I, I, IFEC it anyways, and we'll move on from there. Um, yeah, so Sebastian Barnes and the others in IFEC, they kind of put a, an exercise missile in amongst the, the mandarins in the Department of Finance and amongst government in relation to some extraordinary kite flying that has been going on over the past month or so. And it began with an op-ed uh, article that was written by three Fine Gael ministers of state, uh, which they uh, essentially laid out the case for tax cuts in the next uh, budget. And that set in train a series uh, of uh, arguments and controversies that has kind of rumbled on uh, until this week. So the gist of what IFAC was saying was that if such kind of uh, grandiose promises in relation to tax cuts are being floated out there, it's going to have implications uh, for the underlying stability of the Irish economy uh, going forward. As soon as those words had been uttered, from uh, uh, the mouths of IFAC, the government responded, uh, again, coming out with what has become a uh, a trope, really, for the government uh, in the last uh, 12 months, saying that the, uh, the finances of the country could not be in better shape. They're in shape. rude good health. In rude good health. Talking, Michael McGraw was talking about virtually full uh, employment, which we have, uh, talking about uh, record uh, tax takes, which we have, uh, but a lot of that is coming from uh, the corporate tax sector. We're getting record numbers in from the corporate tax sector. Uh, the the a hugely uh, uh, dominant amount of that is coming from only three companies. So uh, if those three companies, if their fortunes should waver or if they decide to, uh, to, to move elsewhere, uh, that would have very, very serious ramifications for the Irish economy. So the government keeps on saying that we can't be relying on this form of... Uh, tax take forever but at the same time they're relying on it very well, heavily they're, tr- they're trousering it you know yeah, every well, month, they're saying, they? well they are in, in fairness to them they are compartmentalising it they're trying to use it for, for once off and discretionary spending rather than structural spending or for continual spending and that's wise because uh, they realise that, that source of money won't be there forever but it has certainly given Ireland a huge buffer in relation to the crises that we have faced in the past number of years in relation to Covid uh, the invasion of Ukraine, uh, the energy crisis and the current cost of living uh, crisis uh, as well. It has allowed the government to soften the blow, as it were, for a lot of, of people. But the figures in the last month or so have not been particularly 
good. Corporation tax was really good in the first quarter of the year, but the figures for last month uh, were soft in comparison, certainly in comparison to the previous months of the year. And the GDP uh, figures for the country are not as strong as they were, even though the domestic part of the economy, uh, when you kind of uh, take out all the the corporations, the big corporations and their influence upon our GDP uh, seems to be doing okay. Well, this is, I mean, there's a, there, there's a few things to that. I mean, we ventilated some of these subjects on Wednesday's podcast and I think a little bit on, on last Friday's uh, wrap as well. But, and, and IFAC were bound to come in because they have their little role to play in this operetta, mini operetta, which seems to happen over the course of every summer in the run-up to the, uh, to the budget. Pat, I, I wonder whether Paul Krugman, the Nobel Prize winning economist who became unpopular in this country when he referred to leprechaun economics, might be smiling at some of the economic news this week, where Ireland is technically in recession because our GDP has gone down in successive uh, annual quarters. Although you wouldn't think that looking out at the, you know, at what's going on there, full employment, employment is still going up, wages are, are still going up. But we're in recession. There's some weird two-track thing going on in the Irish economy. Well, I mean, this we we're not we're not the first to to notice this, I guess, and that has been a, a characteristic of the Irish economy for a long time. That there's a domestic economy which is a lot more plodding than the multinational uh, economy, which is soaring ahead and bounce back quicker than uh, the many other parts. Although it's still in relatively good COVID. shape at the moment, as Harry uh, says. No, it's, you know? it's in. I mean, obviously, these things, these these two economies, don't exist in isolation from one another. And, you know, it is people who live and work and contribute to the normal domestic economy that are working in the multinationals and that. The distorting thing, I suppose, is the big corporation tax uh, uh, profits that uh, that are paid and the outsized role that the multinational sector plays, uh, plays in the economy. This is probably a good problem to have, you know, uh, uh, an Irish economy without the multinationals would be an awful lot smaller. The country would be an awful lot, um, an awful lot less, uh, less wealthy. And you know, if part of the price for having this sort of turbocharger in in, in the economy is a bit of uh, a bit of jip from Paul Krugman uh, now and again, I suspect that the mandarins of Marion Street in the Department of Finance are uh, more than uh, more than prepared to uh, to pay it. But it does make budget making more complicated because, you know, the decisions that are currently, you know, being framed within Department of Finance, Department of Public Expenditure, perhaps just as importantly across quadrangle in the uh, in the Department of, of the Taoiseach and no doubt the Office of the Taoiseach will also have, uh, have an input uh, into them is, you know, it's difficult to decide appropriate me- appropriate levels of expenditure and so forth when you have this sort of two-tier uh, It's much economy. harder to say no. It really but when you have a lot saying. of money, it's much harder to, yeah. to say no. That's uh, that's for sure. And also, you know, while our while the economy is expanding, like the, the you know, our country in population terms uh, is expanding and therefore, you know, the facilities that typically the state provides uh, in in any similar country, they're also having to expand, and and there's no doubt that you know they have been expanding. If you look at health spending, for uh, for example, health health spending has rocketed uh, up by I think about twenty five percent since before COVID. Once you take the COVID element uh, out of it, um, but we learned this week that health is uh, health is overspending. So clearly, there's more demand within uh, the the newer, larger health service. For uh, for spending, so it, it's it's a difficult 
balance for the government to decide what is the appropriate level of expenditure and therefore what is the appropriate level of putting away of the windfall taxes so that they don't artificially inflate your spending and then when a slowdown comes at some stage in the future that you have to start cutting services and raising taxes. And to differentiate within that between capital investment and infrastructure and ongoing current day-to-day expenditure which you're committing to forever once you've committed to it. Of course. Just one observation, just a general observation just in relation to the situation at the moment. 20 years ago, uh, if the government were to present the kind of the economic figures that Ireland has, They'd, they'd win a landslide uh, in an election, you know. But the economy is no longer the be-all and the end-all in relation to what matters electorally. I mean, the country is doing extraordinarily well. I mean, when you go out and hear people, I mean, so there are some people who are, who are facing terrible hardship. But when you go out and listen to general conversations, you hear people about going to, on holidays to Lanzarote and Tenerife and going to Spain. You know, people have a, a certain level and a standard of living now. 500,000 people went through Dublin Airport last weekend? Yeah. So there's, there, but the ex- 10% of the population? The expectations are higher now than they were 20 years ago, but the expectations are never satisfied. Well, the expectations also may not be met. We did discuss this a little bit on, yeah. on, on Wednesday's podcast. And so, for example, Aidan Regan, who was with us on Wednesday, pointed out that there's a kind of a cohort of people now who have possibly university education, who are in their 30s or maybe into their 40s, but have no, no prospect of buying a house. Mm. Maybe they do get a week in Lanzarote, all right, but they still may feel that they're getting the short end of the stick in other ways. That's why yeah, the, it's, the politics has pivoted a little bit. The, it's moved from uh, the performance of the economy to the relative uh, uh, prosperity that individuals feel in comparison to other people. And I think that when they start judging their lot in comparison to others, there are a lot of people including people who have been university educated who with, fe- who feel, with, some, with who feel, some justification who feel hard done by with some justification because they may have a good income in comparison to their parents maybe not in comparison to their parents but certainly in comparison to their grandparents uh, they may have uh, all the aspirations that their education has given them and still they are your income doesn't look so make, good if you're paying two grand a month in rent no and then trying to save a deposit for a house hmm. which is impossible well, but isn't, isn't this one of the fundamental paradoxes of Irish politics at the moment and at the root of much of that unhappiness. Now, we should caveat that even before we say it by saying, you know, support for the government hasn't collapsed since the last general election. You know, so if you look, there are about, the combined three parties are, you know, seven, depending on what polls you're looking at, maybe seven to ten points below where they were at the last uh, at the last general election, and a lot of the times they're even even less than that. So support hasn't collapsed. Their satisfaction numbers are actually okay for government um, uh, in midterm. But there's no doubt that there is a, a good deal of very vocal dissatisfaction amongst the government and a mood for change uh, of, of of which are uh, from which Sinn Fein uh, is the great political beneficiary uh, at the moment. But the, the the difficulty I think that the government is experiencing is translating the undeniable economic health of the country into public wealth. And what I mean by that is improving public services and, you know, improving the environment in which houses uh, can be built is one of the great log jams. And it seems to me that there is, we talked about health a while ago, you know, that there is these almost sort of blockages or log jams between that translation of economic health into public wealth. And the government doesn't seem to be able to come to grips with those things. It won't surprise you to hear, Hugh, that I have a theory about that, right, which is uh, something that's developing in in tomorrow's column. And we'll see this next week um, uh, when the National Economic Dialogue 
tape begins in Dublin Castle um, on Monday, which is sort of a pre uh, pre budget windbagging session where all what we used to call the social partners go down. Everybody has their say. Tisha can Tony Tisha Minister Finance, Minister for Public Expenditure will all uh, uh, will all, will all be there, and it's very much. What is kind of theory? Tell optics, me about theory. Right? I'm dying to hear what the okay, theory it's is. It's coming, it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> yeah, right. so, so, it, does take, it does take a while, Harry, doesn't it? <laughs> point I make is this, this is very, very much for the optics because the real budgetary decisions, as we know, are taken in much smaller rooms than the one down in Dublin Castle. And the, you know, some of the people who go down to Dublin Castle, you know, multinationals, IBEC, public sector unions, those guys don't really have to go down to Dublin Castle to get their voice heard. You know, their meetings are in much smaller rooms um, uh, with ministers. And we have, this is part of the Irish system where powerful interests uh, are very much a part of the policymaking process. And promoters of that system can justifiably say that in contrast to a much more binary system, say in the UK, that there is a, a kind of a common idea of the national interest and lots of interest groups work to get, uh, you know, work. They have their own version of it, of course. But Although work. that might be a contributory factor in the other thing that you were talking this, about there. This is the theory. Things not actually getting done. This is the theory. My argument isn't getting done either, I suppose, is what you're, is what you're saying, say politely. But that, but that, you know, this system that includes all these very powerful interests also protects those powerful interests as you would expect it to. So when those problems of translating economic health into public wealth involve challenges to the privileges of the those powerful interests, they tend not to get done. So what do you do if you know you can't get over those blockages? Then you talk about things like tax cuts. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. And I'm sure we will end up talking about them uh, yeah, that's, again that's over quite the course interesting. of the I mean, it that, is, I that think it's... A guy called Michael Frankel, who was an economic theorist, he moved from being a communist to being a fascist in the middle of the last century. But he, he, he had a theory called the Iron Law of Oligarchy. And he was saying that a bureaucracy, when you create a bureaucracy, no matter how well-intentioned, that after a while, the name of the game becomes less about what the bureaucracy intends to change. It becomes about maintaining the bureaucracy, yeah. the superstructure itself. So an elite is created and the function of the elite... Isn't that is, in the nature of the bureaucracy? That's, yeah. that's in the nature mm. of the bureaucracy. And we see that. We see the superstructure here. And you, you could almost say that all of those parties who go to those small rooms are part of the superstructure rather than people kind of sniping from the outside. So you could describe that as a populist critique of a self-serving elite uh, doing things for its own benefit rather than the country. Absolutely. You put it in one there, my friend. Um, moving on. Um, because of all the of things I've been accused of, uh, <laughs> say, populism isn't amongst them. A, a party, <laughs> it's, a, it's a lengthy list. <laughs> a party that... My make that very critique is Sinn Féin and one of the notable things I think in the modern political history of Ireland is the way in which Sinn Féin has successfully navigated its way from being a outside the pale politically unacceptable very small party in both sides of the island to being the most popular party both north and south of the border in government if government is reconstituted in Belfast and very likely in government after the next election here and in, in the process of doing that Harry it has kind of it has walked its way very carefully along very roads, it's changed some policies, but one of the things it seems to me it's always done is it's been careful not to forsake what it sees as its own history, in other words legitimate armed struggle as it would see it and that has come up as a news story this week with some controversy about memorials taking place in, in the north. It's in South Armagh um, uh, and that's interesting, actually my, my favourite piece of the week, which actually isn't the piece about Gene Simons calling 
for the Northern parties to get together uh, was a column written by Jared Howland uh, earlier on the week in which he talked about climate change mainly, but he, he had a very good analysis of of the way that Sinn Féin has operated uh, as a party and the various kind of uh, astute ambivalences it has used in terms of arriving at a particular position or not arriving at a particular position, as the case may be. And he focused in on climate change in relation to that. But I'll come back to that later on. But as you're right, there are some things that Sinn Féin uh, is an immutable party in terms of its principles. And there aren't all that many of them, but one of them is the the national question in United Ireland. So you'll hear the party talking actually less in, in recent months, but the border poll is a big part of what the party is about. Uh, the national question, a United Ireland in some form, is 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 you know it's it's the it's the sine qua non of the party. This is what the party is. This is what the party does. And part of that, part of that, has to be um, uh, taking a a. A, a stance on what it considers to be important. We were talking about populism there a few minutes ago and Sinn Féin has often been accused of taking populist stances in opposition uh, but it is not afraid to take unpopulist or unpopular stances in relation to issues to which it considers a core and the South Armagh commemoration is is one of those. It's interesting to note and Conor Murphy said this a couple of times during the week that this is the 13th year that such a commemoration has been held and uh, until it was flagged this week uh, by others and uh, nobody has paid too much uh, notice uh, to and it. And it's a commemoration of members of the IRA who died during the Troubles. Yes, uh, but particularly those involved with the South Armagh IRA, which was one of the most industrious and notorious uh, of the branches of the IRA it would have been responsible for most of the mainland bombing campaign uh, in, in Britain uh, from the 19... 19- late 1970s onwards, from the late 1970s, 1980s and 1990s, most of those who were involved uh, with the England, England unit uh, would have, the, 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 the bombs would have been made, the plans would have been made, the, the, the assembly of the bombs would have been made in, in all in South Amar or, or in the areas uh, around that. So it had a notoriety, it also had a notoriety uh, for the number of, of security force members it killed during the course of the Troubles. And it's clear that the IRA in doing that uh, were responsible for some egregious actions and some uh, atrocities and left countless victims in, in its place. So the way the party has argued that, as it's argued everything else, is that in a conflict like this, uh, you are going to get victims on all sides. You're going to get people who have done wrong on all sides. Uh, but there are reasons why people did what they did. And those reasons have to be commemorated as well as the mistakes being also remembered and also uh, the focus on victims uh, is important as well but they all they stand quite strongly uh, for better or for worse uh, uh, you know in relation to defending uh, what the IRA did and the actions that the IRA carried out in South Armagh and uh, elsewhere and on this uh, the party uh, and the Republican movement has been uh, immutable. So the thing I, I wonder about this, Pat, not to be too cynical about it, because obviously you're talking about, you know, some terrible things happened and some terrible things were done, but I'm interested by the, the real politic of it. Sinn Féin were criticised again this week by the parties, North and South, particularly South, um, over over this. The part, Sinn Féin has obviously made the calculation. It's, it's important to Sinn Féin to maintain these connections with these events of the past and to make that clear. And it's made the calculation that there isn't much electoral damage to it as a result of this, presumably, or at least that's less important, even if there is. Yeah, yeah Sinn Féin will never disavow the IRA, you know. And well, you don't have to disavow them, but you mightn't celebrate them so much. 
I think it's important. It's the same uh, thing, is it? I think it's important to them. Yeah, and uh, and I think you know. You know, I think it's one of the things that senior Sinn Féin people have always been, Harry's right, they've always been really clear about it. And it's, it's very important for Sinn Féin. Commemorations have, you know, they have a kind of a significance and a power, I think, within, you know, the Republican catechism uh, in in the North. And, and it's also very important not to step back from these for the Sinn Féin idea of, of history. And I think this is one of the reasons, one of the ways in which, you know, they do differ. I mean, the, the, the comparisons often drawn between Fianna Fáil in the 1920s and 1930s and Sinn Féin uh, and Sinn Féin now. But the Fianna Fáil of the 20s and 30s, you know, went out of its way to be, uh, you know, to be open to to new supports. I mean, the numbers tell you that. I mean... You know, the, the Fianna Fáil position in the Civil War, you know, was a very much a minority position. It went on to win majorities uh, in, in, in the Dáil repeatedly. So if it was to build support, it had to be open to the history of others. Whereas Sinn Féin have never stepped away really from uh, from that history and their... I suppose the conflicts out of which each party arose was very different. The Civil War was was a terrible conflict but uh, and left deep scars, but it was very short. The Troubles in the North spanned two generations and so it, it runs more deeply or maybe just more differently. Also, think, they took you know? place in very different societies. Yes. You know, I mean, the North is and to some extent remains a very divided place. It is... It is different. That's the reason why it's there. Sure, the, although what we're really talking place. about here is really a dispute between nationalism or nationalist parties. The, the key critique, or, or maybe even the electoral advantage, which the likes of Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael hope to see out of this, is that people are reminded of the past of Sinn Féin and the IRA, although that doesn't actually seem to be what happens. No, it's a bit of a rally around the flag for, uh, for Sinn Féin, and that is a useful device for them, I think, at a point in which they're policy positions are so obviously in flux in preparation for power in uh, in Dublin. We've talked about it uh, here before. Both of us, I think, have uh, have written about it, Harry. You know, the, mm. the, the, the most recent move on neutrality and so forth, the campaign yeah. of reassurance on economic policy directed not just at voters, but at multinationals and so forth, the business, uh, the business community. So at a time when Sinn Féin is doing that, I think it also has to be seen that there is no move from the party leadership on its devotion to the old-time religion. And the old-time religion is and was support for uh, the, the IRA's campaign. Yeah, and that's particularly true uh, up north. I remember somebody telling me many years ago that it must be very hard being Cherry Adams because one has to speak with forked tongue. You're, you have an audience in front of you and you also have an audience behind you. Now, perhaps the audience behind him is no longer there, but certainly... Well, the, they must be dying off at this point. Yeah, but certainly the, the audience in the north um, have a, a view in relation to the troubles, have a view in relation to the... To, to what the IRA have done and that, that view is that what the IRA was completely justified in what, what they were doing and their support that, for that, Sinn Féin that's, that's a novel thing though is, I mean, is, that, that is, predicated on that but I mean, that's not so apparent in the South in the South it, it, you know, it's not that they're, that they're muted in relation to remembering the, the IRA in the South but the, 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 the disposition in the South is completely different in relation to Sinn Féin and what Sinn Féin stands for and what Sinn Féin is so the party has to be careful of both 
audiences, its, its, its membership in the north and then its supporters in the south in relation to the way it goes forward. But one of the things that the party has done, as Pat has said, is that it has never disavowed the IRA and it never will. And, and it, 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 it's, 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 it doesn't even try to, to euphemise. Um, it does. I mean, it, it puts it in the context of, of others. But it doesn't try to euphemise or apologise or try to minimise the role of the IRA in the Republican To what extent is there an element within this is that part of the Sinn Féin project is to rewrite the history of what happened over the last 50 years in Ireland, North and South? I think that's that's definitely true. But like any political party, it seeks to use history for its own, uh, you know, for for its own political ends. And the idea, which has gained, as Harry says, gained an awful lot of support uh, in the North, particularly amongst younger people, that basically, you know, there was no alternative for the IRA. That, Which I mean, was not the view among nationalists in the North. The majority of nationalists, majority of nationalists yeah. in the North did not yeah. hold that view uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm for sure. a long time. For the entire duration of the campaign of violence. If you park for a moment any argument about the morality or justification for the IRA's campaign, it is simply a matter of historic historical fact that it did not enjoy majority support within the nationalist population and Sinn Féin's electoral support was very much uh, in yeah, uh, the minority. I'm not, I'm not so sure about rewriting history. I think it's standing over the history that, that, that it has been writing for many years. If you look at how, what Sinn Féin says about the IRA and the Northern struggle, I don't think it differs all that much now uh, than when, say, Danny Morrison was editor of Unfopic Republican News in the 1980s. In terms of the, the armed struggle, I think its message in relation to the armed struggle has been consistent. Of course, they, they, it came a point where, where the party recognised that that particular approach was no, no longer... No, I think one. it's perfectly understandable, and one might choose to agree or disagree with it, um, but it's perfectly understandable that Sinn Féin, which has always had an alternative, or during the Troubles had an alternative narrative of what, what was going on during the Troubles from the majority of people mm. in this island, is seeking to make that the main narrative. I mean, it would be surprising if it was anything yes. else. And yeah, they've yeah. had some success in that, as we yeah, know. No, they've a lot of success. Right. Yeah. 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 Anyway, we are going to, we're going to leave that subject here. Just to say, before we take a break, that um, if, if you want to read Pat's thesis about the real nature of Irish governance, but read it at a level of brevity and concision that you don't necessarily get in this podcast. Also some you, jokes. And, and with the occasional joke, you uh, I gather there's a, there's a reference to Biggie Smalls. Um, well, I, I, I'm, I'm slightly worried now that we are, you know, we're, 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 we're picking up this column so much, you know, that it'll prove a disappointment I, to All I can say is it is really worth your while to get out your credit card <laughs> and get on to irishtimes.com slash subscribe to sign up to make sure that you don't miss it. We'll be back after this. And welcome back. Uh, Pat and Harry are still here. Um, James O'Connor, TD, member of the Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party, Harry. Um, is he a Jekyll and Hyde figure? <laughs> well, this is the big dispute and it shows you how quiet uh, politics uh, has been this week when uh, James O'Connor, uh, the youngest TD in the Dáil, uh, not the quietest TD in the Dáil by any means, uh, is dominating the Tell headlines. Tell me about James O'Connor. I don't really know very much about him. He's actually quite an interesting uh, young uh, backbench TD from Fianna Fáil. He was elected in 2020 at the age of 22. So he was the youngest TD in this Dáil and remains the youngest TD in this Dáil. He, at the age of 16 or 17, he went and did um, uh, uh, work experience with Mihal Martin, uh, then the Fianna Fáil leader. So he is immersed in uh, politics um, he's a slight maverick. He he has very very strong uh, views on a whole range of issues, 
and is not shy from ventilating them at Fianna Fáil parliamentary party meetings uh, to the media, in the Doyle and amongst the public. And uh, that has got him into um, some disputes and uh, some little bit of bother sometimes uh, with his uh, colleagues. I think at a parliamentary party meeting about a year and a half uh, ago, I think himself and Mary Butler, who is a very stout defender of Micheál Martin, had some uh, words at the end of the meeting. And I think those who tackle Mary Butler need to uh, be well prepared to tackle her because uh, she is... uh, Quite a, a adept at a bit of ground hurling. Uh, yes, say. I think so. She can hurl without the ball uh, very adeptly. So uh, this James, is a very Waterford East Cork kind of conversation <laughs> we're having here. Uh, J- J- James, James and her had had an exchange of words. I think at uh, that meeting, or perhaps another meeting, uh, James uh, felt so aggrieved uh, that he didn't turn up for a subsequent uh, vote in the Doyle. So he's got very strong views on uh, certain things, uh, and uh, amongst them is a bypass for Castle Martyr in his constituency. And uh, it's one uh, of the great issues of the day. Yeah. Uh, well, for him, it's a big issue, uh, and you know he's he's a very good constituency. Ba- badly TD. needed. I visited Castle Martyr earlier this year. Well, yeah, yeah, he does make a good argument for it, and just from a local point of view, I think it, it's a very solid argument. And where does Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde come into all this? Well, Michael Martin. Uh, allegedly said, because I think those close to Neil Martin said that he didn't actually say that James O'Connor was a Jekyll and Hyde figure, even though James O'Connor is of the view that he did. Uh, the I think the, the thesis was that James O'Connor would come up one day and be full of praise for Micheál Martin and the next day he'd come in from left field and criticise him uh, over some issue. Like Papa. Yes, over some <laughs> issue on which Micheál Martin had no notice or no knowledge uh, and wasn't even aware of. So I think that's where the Jekyll and Hyde reference uh, uh, came from. But in fairness to uh, James O'Connor, I, I think he has been, uh, you know, when you look around Fianna Fáil, you know, when you look beyond the cabinet and beyond a couple of other personalities in the party, the party hasn't really been well served by kind of high profile individuals. And one of the things about James O'Connor is that he's injecting a lot of energy. Sometimes it's not directed perhaps uh, as accurately as, as he would like. Uh, he has maintained profile and he has, um, you know, certainly he's probably one of the better known uh, backbench Fianna Fáil TDs out there. So, so one I, of the things I think that he's quite good goes to illustrate in maybe, the Pat, is that uh, something I think is pretty obvious really is that Fianna Fáil has a bit of a talent problem. I mean, there is... There are a number of potential contenders shuffling around in the background should there be a Fine Gael leadership contest, some of whom are very clearly going to throw their hat in the ring. Not quite so clear that in the, in the Fianna Fáil parliamentary party. And this could become an issue for Fianna Fáil in the very foreseeable future. We're now in the summer of 2023. In the summer of 2024, there will be a series. Uh, Ireland must nominate a new European commissioner. One of the expectations around Leinster House is that Micheál Martin might take up that uh, might take up that role. He's naturally enough hasn't made any public comment on that. He said he wants to lead Fianna Fáil into the next election, uh, etc., etc. But if he does not lead Fianna Fáil into the next election, then within 12 months, Fianna Fáil will uh, have to have uh, a leadership uh, election for someone who would lead them into the subsequent general election and make that epoch-deciding choice about whether the party uh, will coalesce with Sinn Féin after that. Election. So these are very big calls that whoever leads Fianna Fáil into the next election will uh, will have to make. Michael and McGrath, Michael McGrath. Um, Jim O'Callaghan, Derek Cleary, 
Um, they're, not jumping off, they're not jumping off the page. Yeah, Butler, really. indeed. James O'Connor. Yeah. You know, well, let's mention them all. Jack Chambers, yeah. I think, is probably mentioned as well. So, mm. yeah, uh, I, I think you're I, right. I used to think, I used to think, we, um, sorry to cut across Harry, but we, we, we discussed around this table many times over, over previous summers, you know, with the impending heave against Micheál Martin and would there be a heave? Would he, would he survive his leadership? If, the, if there is a heave, would he survive it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, what, what happened then was exactly what, what I actually expected to happen is that there wasn't a heave, that Micheál Martin proved, as he had done for the previous 10 years, to be a couple of steps ahead of his parliamentary party uh, on, uh, on every occasion. But what has happened since then has been what I didn't expect uh, to happen, is that instead of leadership speculation ramping up and agitation, backbench agitation within the parliamentary party gunning for Micheál Martin's leadership instead of intensifying as the power of the Taoiseach's office disappeared from Micheál Martin. In fact, the opposite uh, has happened. It has, uh, it has all, all that agitation about his leadership has dissipated. And I used to think that Micheál, if his intention is to depart to the commission next year, I used to think that Micheál Martin's biggest challenge was going to be remaining leader between the time he stepped down from the Taoiseach's office and became tarnished uh, and the point at which the government and makes no sign that. Of that. In fact, I, I suspect, I suspect why his, not? Bigger, why is, why is his bigger not task, assembling their, his bigger task might be getting out. Getting out. That's why is somebody not assembling their forces, whoever it might be? I mean, you would have thought that this would be what would be happening right now. Wouldn't you? I'm, I'm kind of at a loss about it, Harry. I don't know what you think. I mean, to get it, you must want it. And there doesn't seem to be, I mean, in Fine Gael, you can point to five or six people who possibly want it. Whereas in Fianna Fáil, uh, with the exception of Michael McGrath, um, you know, Michael McGrath is probably the person in pole position to replace Micheál Martin uh, if Micheál Martin were to uh, step down. There's no indication that Micheál, I mean, one of the difficulties I thought that he'd have is 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 going undergoing that difficult transition from being Taoiseach to being Tornishta and the kind of the loss of status, but he has managed to maintain a, a very high profile. His popularity in opinion polls has remained very high and um, his uh, his leadership of Fianna Fáil is completely and utterly unchallenged. I mean, even at the start... More so than when he was Taoiseach, actually. Yeah, yeah even yeah. at the start of the coalition when he was Taoiseach, he had, a, he had an uncertain couple of months, but then he settled in and began... I mean, obviously this is down to his... his, his Good performance, but it's also down to the nature of Fianna Fáil, isn't it? The, the, the lack. I think. Yeah. I think the, the, there is a, a lack of hungry of young men talent in Fianna Fáil, yeah. and, and they 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 need urgently to inject talent into the party, uh, get the calibre of TD they require, or else the party's yeah, future not, is going to be That's not something that's going to be done before so the, the next is, election. Is, is, is there any possibility then that that means that they will look to Michal Martin to get them through the next election and into the next term? I think that is now a possibility yep. in the way that yep. I just didn't that's think it was before. If he wants to lead them into the next election, nobody's going to stand in his way. I, I think he's going to be completely unopposed if he, if he very, chooses to do very, that. Very, very interesting indeed. Now, on these pod, this podcast, we do like to look at and recommend articles that caught our eye during the week. Uh, you mentioned Gene Simmons of KISS earlier, yeah, Harry. I'm going to change because I know that somebody else somebody else really wants to talk about Gene Simmons of KISS. The article that I Someone chose... Someone might even have some jokes, man. <laughs> God forbid. The, the article that I chose was a really good column written by Jerry Howland that provided an analysis <laughs> of the kind of the tactics and strategy that's been used by Sinn Féin and by other parties, uh, but also also called out the three main parties in relation to their uh, to their watery stances on climate change. The context of all this was the latest EPA report, which says that we're going to miss our 2030 targets, even with additional me- measures by a country 
mile. And it shows that, you know, that as far as climate change is concerned, all of the parties are able to uh, talk it up. Uh, but when it comes to implementation and when it comes to taking the hard decisions that aren't crowd pleasers that would be necessary in, in order to meet the 2030 targets, all of the main parties are falling short. So he, he takes on Sinn Féin uh, for uh, opposing uh, government policies on climate change tooth and nail, while also saying that the government is me- failing to meet its targets, while cleverly uh, not exposing its hand in relation to what it might do. Uh, when it came to climate change policy. In fact, Sinn Féin, and I've said this before, uh, is really devoid of having any substantive climate change policies itself. Uh, Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, on the other hand, uh, make supportive sounds in relation uh, to uh, climate change. Uh, they do support some of the uh, key platforms that are in the programme for government. But when it comes to some of the very contentious issues, not least those in agriculture, and those that concern fossil fuel and cars and motorists and commuting uh, and uh, sustainable transport and all of that, uh, you see that they they support it in words. But when it comes to action, they either don't uh, progress it through or they resile from a position that they've already Indeed, resolved. Indeed, uh, actually, as we mentioned this podcast when you weren't here, Pat, um, in your interview with Leo Varadkar, it was very clear that Leo Varadkar, as far as he was concerned, this was the issue for the Greens and they had got what they wanted out of it. It didn't really seem to be a, a, a prime issue for him in, in that interview. I do have a question for you, kind of a bone to pick with you, actually, because you've oh, said that the, uh, um, that, that the Greens have made, they had a great achievement in government because they managed to put this stuff into law mm-hmm. and make it legally binding for the for government. But what the hell does that actually mean? Like, who actually gets penalised or, you know, who suffers if, the, if, if they break the law? What does that actually mean? Well, a government will have to, as it is duty-bound by law, We'll so if this to. plays out as the EPA says it will, and we get to 2027, 2028, and we're not hitting those targets, what happens legally then? I mean, there's no, well, there's no compulsion. There's, there's, there's no, no compulsion. Yeah. There, so I, 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 don't think it, I don't think it's judicially reviewable, but the presumption is that a government will seek to uphold its own laws. That is, you know... Yeah. It's like, if this isn't merely a government policy that isn't implemented. It's the law. And... My question well, still stands. Yeah, well, the legislation, the legislation basically says that the modern equivalent of a public pillory will be used, you know, that there'll be head stuck in the, uh, the rack and tomatoes will be thrown at them. They'll get brickbats and they'll get criticism. But nobody gets fined and nobody goes no, to jail. There will be no fines or there will be no compulsion. They won't be coerced to do anything. So they will be held to account by the Iraqis. So it's all rather embarrassing. It, well, what, it's, let's say for let's you know play it out slightly and say well actually it's a Sinn Féin led government, uh, Fine Gael and the Greens and Fianna Fáil are able to jump up and down and say you're breaking the law you're breaking the law and they're say, they're saying well you left us with a mess it's your fault and everybody just does a bunch of finger pointing and they move on and they don't hit their targets. Uh, that could happen. That could that could happen, but it is still even if that does happen, it is still the most significant commitment to climate action that and the most significant programme of climate action that any government has ever attempted by some considerable distance. Yeah, I mean, the fact that it does have a legislative basis or a statutory basis does does give it substance. It's not just a kind of... The next government carrying a majority in the doll could overturn the law. Yeah. 
But I think that's very that unlikely. That would be quite difficult for them to do, I think. That would be politically difficult for them to do. It's much easier just to fail to meet the targets in some ways. Mm-hmm. Anyway, what article did you pick, Pat? Uh, I went to the, um, the, sports, the, the sports pages uh, and I, I commend Joe Canning's preview of the Munster Hurling Final, which is on this Sunday, as you'll both no doubt be aware. What, what, uh, what is that? The Munster It's the biggest sporting event of the year. At least it's the biggest sporting event of the year when Tipperary are playing. Unfortunately, they're not on Sunday, but we're still in the championship. So so Limerick and Clare on uh, on Sunday. And actually, I think tickets are all sold out. Yeah, it's on the Gaelic grounds in Limerick. So, yeah. 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 Proper proper Munster final. Sun shining, skin and hair flying. And the Lex final is on as well, Hugh. But that's not the... um, Kenny versus Galway, but that's neither here nor there. That's neither here nor there. Even though Galway isn't in Lancaster. Are you going to explain all this to him or will I? It's in Leicester. It's in Leicester in the European constituencies. <laughs> it's the Midland Northwest. It's the Midland Northwest final. Anyway, we've totally lost Pat's article. Let's get back to the point here, Pat. It's actually also on the sports pages the FAI's request for 517 million euros from uh, the government, um, which I have to say is is an example of, of chutzpah <laughs> that I sort of admire, given the fact that the FAI has been, I would say, by, by some distance, the most appallingly run organisation organization in Ireland Mm. for uh, for some decades now. And uh, and anyway, they're now looking for uh, half a billion euros of of public money. Well, that does illustrate what we were talking about earlier on, them and everybody else at the moment is looking for vast sums of money. Of course, yes, because the government has the money. Government wants to spend the money to make itself popular. I am not sure that giving it all or giving such a big chunk of it to the FAI though is a you know, no. controversial view. Good, good idea for the FAI or for anybody else. Okay, now speaking of controversial view, how many times did we flag this during the podcast? So Gene Simmons, who is the uh, actually that's all the time for this and week, bass player of the what would you describe them as hair metal, spandex metal, clad, yeah. face painted American nineteen seventies rockers. Kiss. He's most famous for having the longest tongue in American rock and roll at seven inches, insured for one million dollars. Okay, that I didn't know. I didn't know it. But I've now, done my, I've done, it, I've done my research. He tends to stick it out a lot when he's on stage. Well, as you would, I suppose, if you had a if seven you, inch if tongue. You, if you have it, you'd flaunt it. And <laughs> speaking of which, he showed up at the House of Commons on Wednesday as the guest of none other than Ian Paisley Jr., MP for North Antrim and son of the Reverend Ian Paisley, as you all know. I can't imagine that back in the 70s the Reverend Ian was a big fan of Kiss who are noted for kind of albums like Love Gun and Lick It Up and uh, <laughs> although they've one called uh, It's Hot in Hell which I'm sure he would have he, he, he could have incorporated uh, it in some way or another this good stuff you this is worth the wait Any, anyway you can read all about it in my column if you subscribe hey. to the Irish Times um, 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 tomorrow I had this image in my head of Ian downstairs Ian Senior downstairs writing a Hellfire and Brimstone speech in about 1985 about the Anglo-Irish agreement and and literally in upstairs in the bathroom with a hairbrush doing his Gene Simmons impressions, you know, in in, in front of the mirror. But I'll I'll leave you with that thought, and we will leave it there. What a, what a word picture! But what about his contribution to uh, Northern politics? Well, he he was actually quite measured. Um, he he he's hoping that they can get everything back together. He didn't have anything to say about the sausage wars or anything like that. Uh, I, I could imagine Kiss writing a song about the sausage wars anyway. But that, that's a subject <laughs> for another podcast perhaps entirely we are going to leave it here it's all running out of control thanks very much to Pat and to Harry Uh, thanks to John Casey uh, our producer and to JJ Vernon on the desk Uh, we'll be back in more sober mood after the weekend until then see you then